What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome to another week of BDE. See y'all Chuck got mad there that I cut him off again. Sorry, man. I I know you have important things to say on the intro. I really do. See how much smoother <laughs> it goes when we have a proper countdown? Five, four. I know. Last week, Tim didn't give us a good countdown. And he had us looking like idiots just sitting here staring at the camera. I know. My second wife <laughs> may be out there and I could be picking my nose on camera. That'd be bad. I don't think your second wife's going to be watching this show. We only have <laughs> 90s random consultant and sometimes landman dad. I don't think those are your second. second That's not my watching. target market for the second <laughs> wife. All right, Colin, let's get into it. Omicron. Moronic. All right, Colin, we got a new variant of COVID Friday, Black Friday, no less, in South Africa, the so-called Omicron variant. The initial, initial reports were a little sketchy. We had things like more contagious, 30 possible mutations in the protein spike, blah, 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 blah. On Monday, President Biden sought to reassure Americans by calling the new mutant a cause for concern, but not a cause for panic. That said, he did order a travel ban for eight countries. So what happened? The markets were rocked. Dow down 905 points. The S&P 500 tumbled 2.3%. NASDAQ down 2.2%. But our favorite oil was the big loser, down 13% on Friday. Saw a little bit of a rally back yesterday as we were making it up. But, dude, still, I think, we're still uh, talking about this. I think Biden's uh, plan worked. You know, he wanted to lower oil prices. You released two and a half days worth of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. No, that's not going to do anything. What does work? A new COVID virus, a new variant. <laughs> And guess what? It did work. So, um, yeah, you know, you're starting to see things come out online that the doctors in South Africa are saying that the uh, symptoms have been just mild. And so the uh, narrative is definitely being driven by media headlines. And I think it's big nothing burger. Well, let's do some science here. So I called dad. Let's do some. Let's do some science. <laughs> let's do some science. Dude, I if, I knew, if I knew that we were going to segment into that, we would have had a Bill Nye the science guy with Chuck. I can do a video coming next week. No, but I called dad and I'm like, dad, walk me through this. Well, who's your dad? My dad's Dr. Charles Yates, okay. a retired country doctor, as he said on the podcast Charles, when we talked about Charles COVID. Yates sounds so much more elegant than Chuck Yates. Like, <laughs> you're like the bastard son. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the uh, So I called dad and what dad says is generally speaking, mutations of a virus are good, right? Because at the end of the day, a mutation that will spread will be more contagious, but also less virulent because if you're in a pandemic and everybody's on guard and somebody gets really sick and dies, they get isolated, the virus dies in the host body. If you get milder symptoms and it's more contagious, it spreads. That's actually a good thing because at the end of the day, the vaccines are really proving out to be more like therapeutics. I mean, they're helping you not get as sick, not die as much, 
but they're certainly not stopping infection and the spread. It's less. Yeah. It's less. And so anyway, this is actually a good thing. This is what we want to see, because at some point, all of us are going to have to get this virus for it to go away. Yeah. My favorite thing was you had the headlines come out, new variant coming out of South Africa, and then simultaneously you had college football stadiums just packed. So, <laughs> you know, Michigan uh, versus Ohio State, Oklahoma State versus Oklahoma. Like no one gives a shit about COVID, you know. People are more worried about the government's response than they are the actual uh, the actual virus itself. So I think like, that's certainly what the market told us about that, because the market was basically reacting to possible lockdowns and stuff like that. It was not reacting to a bunch of people are going to die. The, the last thing before we leave this, and this is kind of a hot button for me, is I just can't see how Fauci and the CDC continue to ignore natural immunity. I mean, there are only- Dude, I'm not here doing the Lord's work. I'm vaccinated <laughs> with natural immunity. Put it out on Twitter the other day, you know, just walking around with my nuts out in the wheelbarrow, <laughs> putting the world on my back, doing well, good for society. Well, two, two <laughs> things to that, to that point. One, there are only four vaccines on the planet that create a stronger immune response than natural immunity. And that's two of them are vaccines we give two-year-old kids where the two-year-old kids can't actually get the virus. If yeah. they get the virus, it passes through their body. Science figured out you make a vaccine out of that virus, you put a special protein in there, it'll cause an immune response and build immunity in a two-year-old. So two of those are that. The other two are tetanus. And the reason tetanus, uh, if you survive, tetanus is just so deadly. If you survive tetanus, and you have natural immunity from tetanus, you got such a weak dose of tetanus that the vaccine can actually provide a larger immune response and more immunity to yeah. it. And then the, the fourth and final one is HPV. And supposedly, no pun intended, the HPV virus is quote unquote dirty out in the world and they can distill a much purer form of the protein in the lab. So the vaccine is actually stronger than natural immunity, but that's it. That should be the default assumption with a virus is, hey, natural immunity is always going to be better until proven otherwise. Yeah. I'm off the soapbox. You're off the soapbox. I think oil prices uh, rebound when people start to see that this isn't going to cause the lockdowns um, that the media would lead you to believe. So um, we'll see. We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks with commodity prices. All right. So get me off my soapbox. Let's go to Bitcoin mining mania. <laughs> All right, Colin, over the past couple of months, we've seen an explosion of capital devoted to Bitcoin mining. We saw former Apollo partner Greg Beard, Stronghold Digital Mining, went public in October. Australian miner Iris Energy had a $230 million offering here just a couple of days ago. Houston-based Lancium raised $150 million to mine Bitcoin off of renewables. There's been some weird trading in the stocks post going public, but at the end of the day, we're seeing a lot of capital flood there. So, Colin, this is my question for you on a scale of one to 10. So one being the biggest bubble since shale.com, Tulip, England railroads. 
to 10 being the greatest investment opportunity since the Dutch bought Manhattan Island for $24 worth of beads and trinkets. What is Bitcoin mining? Right now, it's a 10. Wow. But I think it depends on timing as well, right? I mean, if you look at what happened in Shell, if you got in on Shell early, most likely you made a lot of money, right? And then as capital poured into the space, it starts inflating asset prices and um, just becomes a much more competitive game. That's when you start to see the signs of a bubble. And um, so I don't think that we're there yet with Bitcoin mining, but I think over the next five years or so, it's a massive opportunity. You know, it's interesting. I've done some uh, some math and quite frankly, I ought to credit BRB because he's the one that walked me through the math and, and helped me with the model. But you've got the halving coming up in 2024 and you got a double to tripling of the computer computing power on the network that's coming out over, let's call it the next couple of years. So if you look at that, you need about $100,000 per Bitcoin to make mining work versus just buying and holding Bitcoin. And so I think that's really the belief here on, is it a 10? If you think Bitcoin is going to continue to rise, then obviously you'd rather mine. If you think it's going to rise, but only slightly, you buy and hold. And obviously, if you think it's going down, you don't buy it at all. Well, here's my thing is that, yeah, if you're bullish on Bitcoin, um, you know, if you're like me and you believe that Bitcoin's going to a million dollars USD per coin, then that affects your financial model significantly when you're looking at, okay, should we be mining and holding Bitcoin on our balance sheet? And so one, I think... um, you know, whoever's mining, it's, it's really determined on what their long-term uh, strategy is. Are they looking to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet? Or are they just looking for a cash arbitrage where they say, hey, we can access cheap electricity. We can mine Bitcoin, you know, for $20,000 per Bitcoin. And currently it's $60,000 and we can liquidate and catch that arbitrage, which, you know, I think over time that margin shrinks. Um, and so I think that, you know, the people that are going to win in the space are the ones that are in it for the long game and want to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet. But, you know, I think it, you're starting to see all this institutional capital come into the space. And when that happens, just like I said with Shell, you know, asset prices um, inflate and it becomes much more competitive. As you mentioned, you know, hash rate or computing power it's going to double or triple over the next couple of years just with the amount of capital coming in so it just means that there's going to be less bitcoin available uh to go around so um you know those things will happen and it happens in um any sector but yeah i'm bullish over the next 10 5 to 10 years and um you know i don't think that i fucking hate the tulip reference to anything bitcoin related <laughs> like it it's not even analogous so don't ever say that to me again please all right <laughs> so two things when it comes to institutions that i think are interesting and maybe misunderstood because i certainly have heard a lot of that when it comes to shale if you're an institution and you have a big pot of money you are not trying to make every investment make money you have a view of the world Shit can happen. If this goes up, you need to be okay. If that goes down, you need to be okay. So diversification reigns at a lot of these institutions. I mean, you've heard my old joke on this podcast a million times about concentration makes you rich. Diversification keeps you there. And so when you look at Bitcoin, it's a trillion dollar asset. Yeah. 
I mean, how many institutions go, eh, trillion dollar asset, we're just going to ignore that. And two, it is highly uncorrelated to any other asset out there. So it's not a proxy for GDP. It's not a proxy for the S&P 500 or anything like that. So if you are a CIO and you're sitting there having a chance to have an uncorrelated asset, that's something you at least got to take seriously. Yeah. I mean, when you first brought up that point to me, it kind of opened up my eyes because that's not how I think as an individual, right? I'm thinking, hey, where can I get the most gain out of, you know, any, any financial investment that I'm making? I don't think along the same lines of an institution does where they're like, hey, you know, like with Shell, don't necessarily care if we're losing money. We had exposure to that asset in case something happened over here and, you know, oil went up. We had exposure to that. Um, I think the correlation comment's interesting. Um, I don't think that... Bitcoin has decoupled from uh, financial markets uh, completely. I mean, when you see drops in the Dow or S&P, we typically do see drops in Bitcoin. And I do think that it'll decouple over time. But, you know, you got to think Bitcoin's still in its infancy, really. I mean, we've been around, what, 12 years now. Um, And so if you were to kind of scale out this graph and look at it, I mean, in the early stages, it's going to be extremely volatile. And I think that it's going to be have some correlation to financial markets, but as we extend out over time, I think that correlation decouples a bit. So, you know, what's important. One last point on Bitcoin. There was a great research report written in the late nineties by first Boston before it became credit Suisse, where the research analyst basically said, you can trace the development of technology as well as predict the future of technology by how well technology helps you access porn. And in all seriousness, and the guys went through the whole story of VHS won out over Betamax because VHS was adopted by the porn industry, even though Betamax was a superior technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Walk through, you know, why do we have streaming services? Because people don't want to walk into a store and rent. And so to that effect, ultimately at the end of the day, Bitcoin's going to be whatever dollar per Bitcoin based on adoption and usage. Yeah. Right. And at least what we've seen is there's been a lot of black market adoption of Bitcoin, which is ultimately going to lead to acceptance in the commercial market. And you're seeing it. AT&T will take it for your phone bill, et cetera. And so I think that's what we need to keep our eyes on when we're talking about Bitcoin five and 10 years is acceptance. The black market comments always trigger me. I got in this argument with this venture capitalist at a WeWork in 2017. He's like, Bitcoin's only used for criminal activity. I was like, no, you know what's used for criminal activity? US dollar. Criminals fucking <laughs> love USD. It's like Bitcoin, you can track, you can see it on the ledger. You know, you can move into privacy coins that um, you can't see transactions, but that's not Bitcoin. And so anyways, I think that, you know, for years we talked about institutional capital coming into the space, and now you're starting to see that. You know, you saw it a couple of weeks ago with uh, what was it, Texas firefighters uh, pension, um, start buying Bitcoin. I mean, the institutional money's coming in here. Goldman said, "Don't worry, uh, he'll bring up the tulip comment to me uh, if Chuck won't." <laughs> I can rely on. So Goldman long as he does Twitter. it with his ladle. Yeah, when he's he, have, when he runs have around his ladle and flat bill hat. So to your point, an interesting statistic: the U.S. Treasury did a study at some point in the last ten or twenty years. Eighty-five percent of all U.S. dollars had remnants of cocaine on it. So <laughs> to your point, the U.S. <laughs> dollar is that. criminal activity. I don't doubt that. 
All right. We got a new segment we're going to do. Probably a one and done, but maybe uh, <laughs> not. And just note it for the record, that is actually my voice singing on this video. Clip. I heard him singing this. Road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. Hit the road, Jack. Jack Dorsey out as CEO of Twitter. Colin, what does this mean? Yeah, well, first off, I went to Google a picture of uh, Jack Dorsey, and this was the first one that came up um, on an article. I can't remember if it was uh, Vox or who it was, but I was just like, dude, look at this stud, man, just out here with the beard, got the abs, like Jack's living his best life. <laughs> you know, here's my thing. Twitter is the most undervalued tech platform uh, currently. Believe that 100%, super bullish on Twitter. If you look at it, you know, they don't monetize the platform. There's very little advertising on it. And everyone's always, uh, their complaint has been that Twitter is arguably the most uh, valuable social media platform out there. I mean, look at the conversations that we're having every day on energy and real estate and politics, whatever. There's just so much information there. But everyone's complaints always been that Jack Dorsey, his time is split between being CEO of Twitter and being CEO of Square. And he just doesn't put as much time and attention into Twitter as he should. Um, so one, I think that the move is going to be good. I don't think that there's really anything. Uh, I don't think it means anything other than he just wants to focus his time on Square. And with that said, I do kind of believe that for Jack, this is a transition between the old internet, which people refer to as Web 2, and the future, which is Web 3. I mean, they're putting a lot of time into Square and Cash App and um, really evolving uh, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And so I think that he's more passionate about that and be excited to see what happens to Twitter because they've got some cool things rolling out. Like now they're getting $2 a month from me recurring. I pay for Twitter blue. Like if I'm paying for it, I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands or millions of other people paying for it too. They got their newsletter subscriptions. They got their super followers. So they're going to start generating some cash. Um, the only thing I hope is that the new CEO, uh, you know, doesn't um, go on a censorship, censorship tirade and kick me off the platform for being pro-oil and gas. Yeah, <laughs> the, the new CEO, they brought up an old tweet he had that basically if they're not going to differentiate between Muslim and terrorist, why should I differentiate between Caucasian and racist? Yeah. But and that thing, was a quote. It was a quote it was a from quote. John Stewart yeah. or Daily Show, um, I believe. So I'm like, and it was from, here's my thing, man, is that I ask this question all the time. What do you say today on Twitter that will get you canceled 10 years from now? And because that tweet was from 10 years ago. And I think about it all the time. Like there's stuff that I say other people say that 10 years from now can get you canceled. So I don't like going back in the time, the time machine to 10 years ago because it's taken out of context. Right. And so I don't like, I don't think the tweet was that bad and it was a quote. So it was like, get I, over it. I don't think it's that bad. I have a dear sweet friend that hates having all of my attention directed towards her. So she makes me take down tweets that might scare off the second wife. So I, have a, <laughs> I have a built in sensor there. All I want to know is, will the new CEO allow us to find out who Mr. Skilling is? Not that I want to dox the guy because I respect it. I, respect I, thought it was, uh, I thought it was Brad. I thought you already. Uh... Now, and I say this with love towards Mr. Skilling. I really do. 
Brad's too nice to be Mr. Skilling. <laughs> He's just a good dude. You know, nice. man, some people are savages once they get an name on account yeah, on Twitter. I don't know. Brings hey. out the, the dark side on them. I don't know about that. <laughs> All right. We've got another news segment here. This one might actually have some legs. This segment, what the hell? All right, Colin, in this week's What the Hell, the Interior Department had a report this week recommended that the federal government raise the fees oil and gas companies pay to drill on public lands. They basically didn't like the one-eighth royalty on federal leases. I don't even know where to start with this, Colin. We could parade any sort of, let's get land mannery in here to say, the price you pay for a lease is based on the royalty. Guess what? If the government would have had a one-fourth lease, they wouldn't have gotten all the money on the front end. The difference between a lease bonus and a royalty interest is what do you want to bet on? If you want to bet on success of the well, take a quarter yeah. royalty and take no money up front. Conversely, if you just want the highest price you can get, Take a 0% royalty or a one-eighth royalty and you're going to get more money. So yeah. each one of these federal leases are public auctions going to the high bid. So how in God's name can you, quote unquote, just raise the rates? This makes well, no sense. Yeah, I mean, fair point. But I also don't think that it's unfair of them to say that, hey, we should move up to a quarter. Um on our leases because that's standard for leases nowadays. Like yeah. you don't see one eighth anymore, right? I mean, it's just kind of standard baseline as a quarter. So if they're saying that, hey, leases across the board are getting a quarter, maybe we should move up to a quarter. I don't think it's unfair to suggest that. But yeah, to your point, if they say, hey, we want a quarter uh, royalty, then you're not going to make as yeah. much on the asset sale. But and that, and that's very fair. If if you want to say, hey, we should take a quarter because we should be betting on the productivity of our lands, that's fine. But the whole notion of we're the government, we just need to charge more. That's wrong. Yeah, it and was, also, and also, hey, we're the government, and we bastardize and and talk shit about oil and gas. But oh, hey, we want to make more money off yeah. of it. Like, that's that's a little, a little well, wrong. Well, that was the big part that's potentially going to cause some firestorm. Here is mentioned nothing about climate change, really. Yeah, exactly. So, no, they they don't care about that. So yeah, I, I get your point that it really doesn't matter in the in the grand scheme of things but i think that it's fair for them to suggest that they should move it up to a quarter royalty i don't i don't have as strong of a take as you do on that yeah <laughs> the, the land man comes out in me periodically all right next tesla schmeschla All right, Nissan announced that it is going heavy into the electric vehicle game. So they're going to invest nearly $18 billion over the next five years to speed up electrification of its car offering. The plans to roll out 23 new electric vehicles by 2030, with 15 being fully electrified. And the goal is to have 50% of sales being EVs by the end of the decade. And also they want to move to solid state batteries um, and have uh, solid state batteries by, I think it was 2028. So this is the funniest, uh, not the, I mean, it's funny, not like super funny, but I want to show you this truck real quick. All right, let me see. This is one of the trucks <laughs> that they want to push out. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, what are you going to do with this truck? 
And then I start like you move around to the back and it's got like these, <laughs> <laughs> these, these lights and which this is like the new age bumper sticker to me. Cause it looks like you can program it to say stuff or at least they have like different preset emojis or whatever. So I was like, this is kind of dope. You could use this as a billboard, but I just think like, who's the target uh, market for this type of truck? You know, this isn't, I come from a land of rednecks and I am a redneck and I love trucks, but I would never buy that. And so, um, that was kind of interesting. Uh, what to is see the that, point but... of a car to woo women? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's it. working. Although if it is working second wife, please let me know. I'll get on the waiting list. If you're watching this show, uh, let, let Chuck know if you're on the, uh, Nissan electric vehicle bandwagon, but yeah, I, um, you know, I, I posted the other day, Toyota announced their hybrid um, Tundra, and I'm really excited about that. You know, it's not full EV, but it is hybrid. And so in the next year or two, my driveway could have an F-150 Lightning, a hybrid Tundra, and then I'm a diesel fanboy, so I'm going to have my 12-valve Cummins. I don't think the Nissan is going to make it in the in the EV lineup with that truck. So they're going to have to come out with something a little bit better for people that actually like trucks. There you go. All right, Colin, our repeating story, the underappreciated story of the week. All right, Colin, underappreciated story of the week this week. NCAP backed Paloma has struck a deal to buy publicly traded Goodrich Petroleum for $23 a share representing, in effect, a 7% premium. So they're basically just buying at the money. So here's why this is underappreciated. In my time in private equity, when you watched out and you saw all the firms, generally NCAP would do stuff first. So NCAP stepping out, buying a public company. You wonder if kind of Boone Pickens' old line about sometimes it's cheaper to buy your barrels on Wall Street than it is in Midland, mm -hmm. if that's playing a, playing a part here. I think... What led to this is Goodrich was a bankruptcy, right? So you had a concentration, concentrated ownership in all the former debt holders. And when you hold debt in a fund, you hate holding equity because the only way you make your returns in a debt fund is you buy debt, but then you also lever on top of that. A lot of these debt funds will be levered 2x, 3x, 5x. I've heard of 9x levered type <laughs> funds. So when that debt all of a sudden turns to equity and is bouncing around, you can't put 9x leverage on it anymore. So debt funds hate to hold equity, even though it makes a lot of sense to make bankruptcies easier here. Just take the equity of the company and yeah. let's call it a day. Let's yeah. not spend $100 million on fees. But anyway, so you had a concentrated ownership of former debt holders. They brought in new management to run it. Do you know what the incentive package looks like for a new management team when you have a concentrated group of holders that are former debt holders? Get the fuck out as quick as possible <laughs> and you get a big check. Yeah. So that's going on. And so this is a this is a big home run for uh, for Goodrich. The stock's actually done pretty well since they reorg. So the debt holders get out for cash, which is a big win. Management team makes some bucks, which is a big win for them. And. I'm looking at it from NCAP's point of view and done a lot of deals with those guys. They're, they're sharp guys. I know this is the way they're looking at it is we can buy this. Goodrich really didn't have access to capital, so they may be drilling a well a quarter, that type thing. 
NCAP is going to be able to bring capital to bear and they're going to be able to go in there and develop things on a pad basis, put some real money behind it, accelerate the reserves. But at the end of the day, natural gas prices are going to determine whether this is a good deal or not. Yeah. You know, it's so that's always so right. Happy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Always commodity price, underlying commodity price always determines if you're what, smart or not. Yes. What's the price <laughs> today? Am I smart or not? <laughs> All right. My favorite, my favorite segment to, <laughs> to end the week or to end the show is finger of the week. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we double hit. So finger of the week this week is pretty sure consecutive back-to-back reigning champ, which is our the first. The goat of the finger of the week. Is Elizabeth Warren. So Elizabeth Warren wanted to show off uh, her, I would say, her good food that she's making for Thanksgiving, but we'll get to that uh, here in a second. She said, success this year. I did not set the marshmallows on fire on her uh, sweet potato casserole. But I noticed here in the corner of the picture, you can see the cast iron grate of her nat gas stove. And so I retweeted this and I was like, someone that demonizes oil and gas companies over and over again is using a nat gas stove to cook Thanksgiving. That is rich. Then I thought of a joke later. It was like Elizabeth Warren could have replied, not as rich as a sweet potato casserole. But By I was like, way, look at those fucking joke. look at those marshmallows. Like one, it's embarrassing to even be taking a picture of this, like to be proud of this dish. Second, fuck anyone that tries to make sweet uh, potatoes a dessert at Thanksgiving. Like that's just sweet potatoes aren't meant to be a dessert. So there's like all kinds of things <laughs> here, uh, all different types of reasons why Elizabeth Warren is getting finger of the week. But, you know, I'm sure it's not going to be the first time. Uh, she's got some pretty uh, terrible oil and gas takes. So I'm sure we'll have her as a feature. When, when, do, when do we make her ineligible for the finger of the week? I think we could have a running. You're going the wrong way. I just <laughs> said, when, she get, when is she getting her own feature? You're saying, when do we make her ineligible? <laughs> I'm going the other way. Like She may just become a staple in the show. Fair enough. The, uh, the best tweet I saw about that is I thought Native Americans didn't celebrate <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> that was a good joke. I think yes. that was a uh, buck yes. on uh, Twitter that dropped that one. So anyways, guys, that's all that we got for this week. If you want to catch us next week, subscribe to our channel. You'll get a alert that we're going live. We go live at uh, 1030 a.m. Central every Tuesday. Make sure to sign up for the BDE newsletter as well on digitalwildcatters.com. Catch you guys next week. And rest in peace, Virgil Abloh. Not a day goes by where I generally don't wear something of yours and you will be missed. Chuck has a tribute to him every day with his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We'll catch you next week.